Okay, same as last week, now's your chance. If you need to move and adjust on account of the sun, you can do so. It, won't, it probably won't matter. Half of you will be, who are in the dark right now, will be in the sun, glaringly uncomfortable by the time we get done. Uh, in the back. Did we still have lessons in the back? Went yes? All right. Cassie, were you the last one in? No? Yes, maybe. Jeremiah's got some. Anyone need a handout for tonight? My wife does. <laughs> Jeremiah, do you have an extra one? Do you have more? Okay, can you give one to my wife? It's who? So were you raising your hand for Mike or for yourself? Oh, okay. What a gentleman. Okay. Uh, first things first, we've added a couple books to the table up here that you might want to look at uh, real quick um, in no particular order. This is one that I meant to have uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible. This came from the house. You can tell that we used it, okay? It's, all right, it's good. It didn't just sit on the shelf. This is a good one uh, if, you're, if you've got young kids. This is one, um, I had a, a parent. Okay, I, yeah, you can look at it now, I guess. Yeah, I, no, no, oh, no, no, don't look at it now. Wait till, wait till after, and then I'll, yeah. I'm sorry, That's, it's always the communicator's fault, right, if there's misunderstanding. All right, um, this one was the, uh, was the result of being stumped by a parent who said, you know, we've got young kids and we're trying to find something to do with them uh, to, get them in, uh, to get them in the Bible, but something that's going to be on their level. A hundred days of Bible reading, uh, this is volume one, very short Bible readings that, uh, that take you through and then give you opportunities for uh, just real basic question and answer if you want to flip through this. Some of these pages have already been done by, uh, by the mom and the, and the girls. And let's see, two parenting books. This is one of my wife's favorites, uh, Shepherding a Child's Heart by Ted Tripp, all right, if you don't have that one. And then the one that I mentioned last week, like a bonehead, I forgot to bring it with me, uh, just came out this year, The Disciple-Making Parent by Chap Bettis. This is quickly becoming, I th well, at least right now anyway, I think this is going to be my go-to book for, uh, for parenting recommendations. Uh, let's see. For example, uh, one of the sections, The Power of Seeking God, Helping Your Children Go Further Up and Further In. That's a C.S. Lewis illusion, so you know the guy's got to be good if he's quoting from Narnia stuff, right? Okay, anyway, you can see those after we're done. Uh, let me transition our time in tonight by picking up on a point that I neglected to make last week. Last week in session one, um, we were trying to stress the importance of uh, having patterns in your, in your parenting, especially when it comes to, um, to talking and instructing your children on spiritual matters. Of course, that could pertain to any number of things, but we're trying to you know, get first things first, lay the foundation. We were in Deuteronomy 6 um, last week, uh, roughly 4 through 7. Uh, we talked a lot about uh, the patterning and finding um, things to do on a regular basis, looking even for um, spontaneous or unplanned opportunities that may not fit the pattern, but trying to be ready for it nonetheless. The, the thing that I didn't do, or at least as I look back on it, the thing that I didn't do, um, I didn't stress the, the persistence issue um, the way that I would have liked. So because we don't have time to do it right now, let me just do it in sort of an abbreviated sort of way as we move into session two. The, the persistence comes into play because um, as parents, and especially parents of young children, or looking back on when your, your kids were young, we recognize that they don't pick everything up all, all at once. And a lot of times, you know, we talked last week about the fact that the, the need for repetition because they don't always hear or even remember everything that we say, so it's good for them to hear it over and over again. The persistence part comes... Uh, 
comes into play, especially when you're looking long-term and when you realize that it's, it's not just simply the fact that you want them to hear and remember the things that you've told them or the instructions that you've given them, but ultimately you're hoping that to the extent that you're um, pointing them to Christ, you're, you're hoping that ultimately this stuff sinks in and actually does take root in their heart and it, it brings about some sort of fruit. The challenge, though, is, is that depending on the day and time at which you look at your kid, it can be very hard to see any signs that anything is sinking in or taking root, okay? So the, illustra- the illustration that I heard a while back, and I wish I could remember who I heard it from so I could give them credit, but I can't. The illustration that I like um, to use is um, it's like throwing um, stones or rocks out on a frozen pond, Right? So you, you throw the rocks out there, and each rock that you throw in just kind of hits with a thud on the ice. And it doesn't really seem to make much difference, right? It's, it's not breaking through. It's not making it in, sinking down to the bottom. But as you continue to throw the stones and the rocks out there, right, eventually the sun's going to come out, and the season is going to change, and it's going to start to warm up, and the ice is going to start to thaw, And as the ice starts to thaw, the weight of the rocks and the stones and the pebbles that you've thrown out there begins to build up on the ice so that eventually it does begin to break and crack through and it sinks in. One of the things that we constantly have to remind ourselves over is that persistence is key in all of this because ultimately there's nothing that I can do, nothing that you can do to bring about the ultimate transformation of the heart and mind as we'd like to see, and I'm speaking primarily as, a, as Christian parents, okay? What we can do, though, is continue to be faithful, trusting that God is the one ultimately who sees to the fruit-bearing process. We don't know how or when he's going to do that, but I'm going to continue to labor, trusting that he's capable of taking all of this work and all of this labor, and in his goodness and in his kindness, making it effective at some later point in time. Okay, so I'll give a, uh, just a personal example to wrap this up and then we'll move on to session two. Um, there was an opportunity I had maybe a year or so ago, I don't know, to um, do a, a kind of a, a makeshift baptism for a woman who was in the hospital who was terminal. Um, she wasn't able to get out of the hospital and so um, I got together with a, a group of, um, of older ladies and we did sort of like a, a modified baptism in the room, on, on the hospital bed and everything. And so I, I thought, man, that's something good to talk to the kids about. So we're driving out to my mom and dad's for, uh, for family supper where everybody gets together. And so captive audience in the car. And so I'm talking to, I think I started off talking with Chris about it, and one of the kids overheard. And so they start to ask questions about it. And one of the questions that came up was, um, you know, well, why did you, why did you do, do that in the hospital? And, you know, like put water on the head when they're used to seeing people, you know, getting dunked and everything. Well, you know, she was, she was close to death and, you know, we didn't know how much more time she had. And then one of the kids asked, well, what, what would have happened if she had died before you had been able to do that? Boom. Great opportunity to talk about the gospel and the, and the sufficiency of Christ, right? That even baptism, which which is an act of obedience, doesn't save us. It's Christ who saves us. And so I go through this thing, and and listen, the heavens were opening up, right? Divine revelation coming down, flowing eloquently from my mouth as I'm preaching the, the saving grace of Jesus Christ and how it's only through faith and trust in him that he can be saved. And I, I don't know how long it went, but it, it was masterful, at least so far as I could tell. And as soon as I got done, before anyone could say anything, Casey, our youngest, pipes up from the back. She's sitting right behind me. First words out of her mouth, Dad, I wouldn't kick a baby That, that was our response. Everybody just, good, Casey. We're, we're glad. And so then the rest of the ride, I have to sit and think, did she hear anything, anything that I said? Did she hear me talking about Jesus? Did she, right? What, what is going through that little head that that's the first thing that comes out of her mouth? I wouldn't kick a baby. When has she had opportunities to kick a baby? Has she ever been tempted to do that, right? That kind of a, that kind of a thing. 
Okay, but there again goes back to the issue of persistence. There are going to be times when these conversations will be had again. It's not just a one-off in the car on the ride to grandma and granddad's, but we're going to do this over and over and over again, and eventually these things are going to start to sink in and connections are going to start to be made. I just have no control over how or when that happens, okay? So we'll use that to transition. If, if persistence is, uh, is one of the key words from last week, Consistent is one of the key words for this week when we talk about house rules. So this is uh, session number two. Let me see if we can get this going. Here we go. House rules when law is grace. Be clear and be consistent. The reason I make this a session is, is because of the fact that there, uh, there's a lot, of, um, a lot of literature out there, Christian bookstores, blogs, you know, that, that kind of stuff, that stresses and emphasizes the importance of uh, parenting with grace, um, or uh, title of a, of a pretty good book, uh, Give Them Grace, you know, and all of these things. The problem is, is that grace sometimes can be just as abused as law and order, right? Because we can mess anything up. And the other difficulty with that is, is that oftentimes when we stress grace to, um, to the exclusion of uh, obedience, expectation, rules in the house, we, we sort of unwittingly separate law and grace as if there's no way in which those two things connect or relate to each other. So what I want to do, I want to start off just biblically, very briefly, laying a foundation to show that both in Old and New Testament, that law in and of itself is not contrary to grace, and then use that as a springboard for the rest of our discussion as a way to say, therefore, it's okay for us as parents to have rules in the house, to expect our children to obey, to expect them to be responsive, and to, sti- and to do that in such a way that we still exhibit kindness and grace and love and care and concern and, you know, that we show a a godliness in the way that we parent, okay? So, let's just uh, start off. Here's a a good quote to start with. This is from J.C. Ryle, old dead guy. He says, you must not wonder that men refuse to obey their father which is in heaven if you allow them when children to disobey their father who is upon earth. That sort of sets the tone for where we're going, that what we have in our homes is a microcosm of the way that God has actually designed His created order, particularly when it comes to His human creation, that just like our children have a father, a mother, who lay down rules or who give directions or even commands and do that in such a way that they mean it for their good and for their benefit, we also have a heavenly father who does the same thing. The home is the first opportunity that we have as people, as individuals, as humans, to actually put into practice the work or the the trust-building exercise of obedience and coming to find that obedience is a good thing and that obedience can come from a motivation of love and not just mere external demands. So Ryle's position was, listen, teaching your kids to obey in the home is actually preparing them to respond in obedience to the call of their heavenly Father when those times come, not just at the point of conversion, but actually as you go through the Christian life as well. So we'll take as our model the only perfect Father that exists, which is God himself, and we start off by observing that God, the perfect Father, is a lawgiver. So Deuteronomy 6, 20 through 25, very clearly lays out the idea that the law was for Israel's good and for her survival. You could uh, maybe even sort of stiffly or literally say it was for her good and for her life. So if you have your Bible and you want to go to Deuteronomy 6, go ahead and do that. I'm going to read it whether uh, whether you have it in front of you or not. So notice here, 620, when your son asked you in time to come, saying, what do the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments mean which the Lord our God commanded you. Notice, the question is about the law. 
The question is about all these things that we have to do because God told us to do it. Verse 21, then you shall say to your son, we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us from Egypt with a mighty hand. Moreover, the Lord showed great and distressing signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all his household. He brought us out from there in order to bring us in, to give us the land which he had sworn to our fathers. Verse 24, here's the key that what we're zooming in on. So the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always and for our survival, or literally for our life, for our living, as it is today. It will be righteousness for us if we're careful to observe all this commandment before the Lord our God, just as he commanded us. God saves a people for himself. He calls Israel my firstborn son. Israel is my son, my firstborn. Let him go that he may come and worship me. And he he pulls Israel out of slavery and out of bondage in Egypt, gathers them to himself, and the first significant thing that God does is that he gives them the law at Sinai. Not because he says, well, you had one taskmaster, and now that I've broken you in, I'm going to show you what it really means to live under a taskmaster, and here are all the new rules that you have to live by. Rather, God gives them the law, commands, as a way to make known to his people his mind, his ways, his hearts, and to let them know how to live in such a way that they will be able to enjoy him to the fullest and be able to enjoy each other in community to the fullest. It was for their good, not for their detriment, and not to kill or to squash their joy. Second one, John 1, 16 and 17. When John is talking about the fact that the Son became flesh, he makes this interesting statement In verses 16 and 17, he says, For of his fullness, talking about Christ, we have all received, and grace upon grace is probably what most of your versions have. Any of you have anything different? Grace upon grace? Grace after grace, that's good. Maybe grace instead of grace or grace in place of grace is kind of what I think John is going after here. Four, verse 17, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Did, if we had more time, this would be a great, a great couple of verses to unpack here. This is a simple point that I want to make. The connection with 16 and 17, talking about the fullness of Christ and that we have received grace upon grace, verse 17 explains that last phrase, we have received grace upon grace, for... The law was given through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. In 116 and 17, I think the point that John is making is that the law was actually the first display of God's grace to the world, that God revealed his grace to Israel through the law And now that Jesus has come, he has taken that grace and supplanted it with a greater grace. Do you see? So he's not saying that the law was not gracious, that the law was not good for Israel. It was. It was very good and kind and gracious for God to give his people a law to live by. Now Jesus comes and he gives a greater grace. All right? And then last one, this sort of works hand in hand. At least one reason why the law was gracious is because, as Paul says in Galatians 3.25, he says, the law has become our tutor, some of your English versions may have, or our instructor, or our guide. It's, it's sort of a hard word to, to translate because we don't have a good one-to-one English um, correspondence there. But the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. Paul says that what the law did was that as it, re- as it revealed our failures and our weaknesses, it made us aware of our desperate need for Christ. 
so that the law was actually sort of the rail, the guided path that ended with Christ. As we walk the path of the law and we trip and stumble and fall and find it hard and difficult and tiresome, right, we're becoming more and more aware of the fact that we need something more than just the law saying live this way because I, I can't live the way that the law wants me to live. I need to find a life that, that gives me a power that the law cannot give me. So for all these reasons, the fact that God gives the law to his people as a demonstration of his goodness to them, that he gives it to them for their life, not for their destruction, and the fact that even in the broad scheme, the broad plan of redemptive history, John tells us that there was grace upon grace. The law was the first major display of God's grace. Christ now has come to fulfill that law and then to supplant it with an even greater grace. The law was gracious. Christ is, great, is even more gracious. And then three, the law actually becomes a tool or the means by which God brings his children to the saving knowledge of Christ is all important for us to recognize and understand, especially as parents, to give us sort of a biblical model or foundation for the importance of having not just biblical law explained and put out to the house, but even our own house rules. We're following in the patterns and footsteps of, um, of God himself. All right, you, I don't know if you can see this. I, um, and I tried to save, I think there's a, a very generous generous gap in your notes where you can microscopically print this little sketch out. Let me go ahead and just put both up so it'll be a little bit quicker. All right, if you're looking at the the circles on the left, oh, look at that. Can you see that better now? Yes, no? Yes, maybe, okay. I'll just tell you what it says. Uh, The circle in the middle is your young child And then the circle above it is dad and mom. The circle down below to the right is siblings and friends. And then the circle down to the left below it are toys. The last one, toys. Those are things that you get for your kids that they enjoy, right? They they play with them, have a good time. Did parents give toys back when you were... A parent can just <laughs> right <laughs> sticks and rocks. Um, okay, the circles on the right. The center circle is your adult child. The circle at the top above your adult child is God and other authorities. The circle below your adult child to the right is child spouse, church members, co-workers. You could probably put neighbors in there, okay? And then the circle below your adult child to the left, we could just, you could put like uh, possessions or property. By the way, credit where credit is due. This, this little diagram comes out of this Chat Bettis book, the disciple-making parent, I thought it was a pretty um, simple but clear way to sort of illustrate the dynamic that we're after here. God has designed the home in such a way and has tied our parenting with our children, has tied it ultimately to his plan for their lives as a whole in such a way that the home is sort of a microcosm or a small laboratory, small training ground for what adult life is going to be like in the future. So right now, when your child first come, takes you know, his or her first breath, comes into the world, they're totally helpless and dependent. Everything that they get, everything that they need, all of the instruction, you know, the beginning and end of their days is represented by their mom and their dad. That's their ultimate authority. And then they have most closely associated with them they have their siblings and maybe their friends from school or something like that. And then they have their toys or things at the house. And you as a parent are instructing your child 
but then you're also instructing them in part by sort of setting boundaries or guidelines as to how they're to interact with their brother and sister. No, you can't hit. No, you can't pull hair. No, you can't do that. No, you can't do that. No, you can't get the knife. Or how you play with toys. We need to share our toys. We don't need to be selfish. And then all of that continually grows and morphs into ultimately adult life where you go from being a child where you have your parents as your authority. It's not that you get out of the house and you find that now I don't have any authority. Hallelujah. You just find new sources of authority, a boss, the law, government, hopefully God himself. And the toys become bigger and more expensive, right? So now instead of a little push car, it's an actual car. And the friends become more significant, more influential. I've got a wife now instead of, you know, some knucklehead friends. And I've got, you know, church members that are my brothers and sisters in Christ. And learning how to make peace in the home as a child has a lot of similarities to learning to make peace with my brothers and sisters in the church as well. So a lot of what goes on in the home translates over almost one for one when it comes to adult life, and that's what we're trying to keep in mind. Let me also, because you don't have this in your notes, let me also just throw this out there before I forget um, as we start to move on. Um, there's, There's also a progression when you're going from young child to closer and closer to adulthood, there's also a progression in the way that you, even though you're still the authority in the home, there's a progressive way in which your authority expresses itself or um, is experienced by your child. So, so I'll give you kind of three broad categorical descriptions, all right? The first one is um, you're the authority figure, you, you're a benevolent dictator, Everyone know what a benevolent dictator is? You know what a dictator is, all right? Benevolent, you, you dictate for their good. So you tell them when they have to go to bed, you tell them when they have to get up, you tell them when they have to bathe, what they have to eat, what they can watch, what they can't watch. You do everything for them. You have to explain, literally, verbatim, everything that you want. You, benevolent dictator. There's no discussion. There's no opportunity for compromise. It's just, this is what dad said. This is what mom says. This is the way that it's going to be. As they continue to grow and get older, you start to move away from sort of the benevolent dictator to more of a teacher or an instructor. All right, this is when they're beginning to get the ability not just simply to converse, to talk, but they're actually starting to think through things why do I have to go to bed at eight when my friends go to bed at nine, right? And then you have to kind of step in and say, while not abdicating your authority, well, here's why. And then ultimately, you go from benevolent dictator to sort of like a, an instructor or a coach to really more of an advisor once they, hopefully, when they leave the house, and they, and they should leave the house, Right? Okay, when they leave the house, you, you don't have any control on them anymore. One of the great blessings, though, I think as parents that we should all aspire to is to be able to live with our kids in such a way that while they're under our roof, we're thinking ahead to the future and hopefully trying to, to lay groundwork for a good relationship with them when they're adults. I'm, I want my sons and my daughters to feel comfortable with coming and talking to me about adult things when they're out of the house, not so that I can tell them, well, here's the house that you need to buy, or don't buy that car, buy this one, but because I, I want to be able to encourage them, I want to be able to advise them so that they can gain from my experience, but then ultimately recognizing they, they belong wholly and completely to the Lord now, they have to make these decisions for themselves, all right? So, microcosm, what happens in the home is ultimately training them, for, training them for life in the future, and then there's sort of a progressive way in which even though we continue to demonstrate our authority, we move from benevolent dictator to more of an instructor coach, that might be maybe middle school, high school years, and then ultimately, hopefully, hopefully, um, as a valued uh, counselor or advisor. Uh, by the way, 
typically, at least in my experience, and you can correct me if I'm wrong if your experience is not the same, usually there's also this odd sort of progression in the type of fatigue that you experience. So in the benevolent dictator phase, you are, you are physically tired because you have to do everything. It's not just telling them everything they have to do. You start off as a benevolent dictator by doing everything for them and telling them everything they have to do. And then as you start to morph into more of the the role of coach and instructor and stuff like that, you still have authority and you're still laying down the patterns and the rules of the house and everything like that. But at least in my experience, it becomes more of a mental, emotional strain. Because now I have to put up with a lot of griping or a lot of complaining or a lot of questioning, right? And that gets to be exhausting. I just, just go back to your room. I can't because I'm about to flip out, right? I don't want to end up on the 11 o'clock news tonight. And then as I understand it, when they're out of the house, not that there isn't, the spiritual trials or challenges while they're in the house, there is always that. But it does become much more of a spiritual exercise because of the fact that you have no influence or no control or very minimal, right? Is everything that you're doing now is prayer because they're out of the house. They're on their own, right? Okay, we need to keep moving. All right, so what, so what we're going to do then, we're gonna, and we need to do this at a, a fairly good pace, we're going to try to take those three foundational ideas about uh, uh, the law, and we're going to use that as the basis to make some observations about um, having rules in the house or having commands. So we had said from Deuteronomy 6 that God, gave, that God as a perfect father gave the law to his children for their good and for their survival, or for, for their good and for their life. So just some reasons why we give rules for our children. Number one, because they're ignorant. This should be a no-brainer. Everyone should be able to agree on this. When our kids come into the world, they know absolutely nothing. They, don't, they can't even survive on their own without our care protection provision. Everything that they learn, even about the basic existence from them, everything that they learn has to come from us. It's madness then knowing that the starting point for every single person who ever, who's ever existed is complete and utter ignorance. It's madness to assume that someone who starts from that vantage point is going to have the ability to figure out for themselves what's best for them. Right? Number two, on top of being ignorant, children are foolish. Now, ignorant and foolish can be two totally different things. Biblically, and especially when you look in Proverbs, it's, it's, very, it's very interesting to look at the way that Proverbs talks about a fool or someone who is foolish. There are lots of characteristics and descriptions, but someone who is foolish, uh, one of the defining characteristics is they tend not to be able to think in terms of the big picture. The only thing that they can focus on is the here and now. What's happening right now at this minute, they, they do not see two, three, let alone four, five, ten steps ahead. Because they're foolish, they have no bigger vision of, say, delayed gratification, future consequences. Because they're foolish, they think that whatever knowledge they have amassed is sufficient, if not superior to, the knowledge of those who are demonstrably wiser. That's that's also a mark of foolishness. It needs to be recognized then that even though my kids may think they have reached a point at which they don't need me anymore, so long as they're under my roof, so long as they're minors in my house, Scripture continues to refer to them in all of the key dramatic passages about parenting as a foolish person 
who has to be trained out of foolishness. So the definitive passage, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. You, you do a cross-section of a kid, and you look at what's in the core of their being, and Scripture says, foolishness. But the rod of discipline will drive it far from them. You're having to wean them off of this foolishness that they come born with. By the way, they get it from you, and they get it from me, so they, you know, they can't help but, but be foolish. Number three and number four, children need to learn that they have disordered desires. We mean two things by this. Number one, we mean that disordered may mean that they are not putting the desire in the right order. For example, they want dessert, but they want it before they have the meal. No, that's not the way the order works. You have the meal, your meat, your potatoes, or your vegetables, you have that, and then if mom and dad have dessert, that desire can be satisfied, but at the right time. The other, the other sense of disordered desire is sometimes they desire things that are just plain wrong. It's not that they have a desire for something that's good or something that, well, is okay. They just want it at the, at the wrong time or in the wrong... They, their desires are just flat out wrong. And children need to know that even though this feels right, it's not right. Which is one of the reasons that you have rules and instruction and laws in the house, everything from practical day-to-day things ultimately moving up to the highest law, which is God's law himself, as a way to show when your child's heart is beginning to sort of veer out into chaos or is chasing after things that are unlovely. One of, the, one of the best definitions of education, especially from a Christian perspective, is that we are teaching our children to love what is lovely and to hate what is ugly. And of course, what counts as lovely and ugly is defined biblically. It's those things that fall in line with the mind of God, His heart, His character. Right? But, but they don't know what those things are, and that's one of the things that God has, one of the reasons why God has given them parents. Number four, children need to know their parents submit to their father's authority. By that I mean this. One of the, one of the things, uh, let, let's face it, especially when you're sort of in that everywhere between the exhaustive, right, benevolent dictator, I have to do everything, I have to stay on top of you every minute of the day, to even when they start to become a little bit more self-sufficient and you're kind of moving out of the physical benevolent dictator exhaustion to the emotional, mental exhaustion of trying to pick battles or, right? Everyone knows, every parent knows that there are, there, there are certain times when your kids clearly deserve some sort of discipline or correction and you just don't feel like giving it to them, right? Either because... Oh my gosh, if they're acting like this now, can you imagine what's going to happen when I give them a spank? Or can you imagine what's going to happen when I tell them they've been grounded? Or when I take the Wii away from them? Or the place, that kind of thing, no way I want to do it. Or you're just too tired, you're too frazzled, just go to bed, we'll call it even, and that's it, right? Here's the thing, though. Going back again to Proverbs, Proverbs and Ephesians for example, make it very clear that one of the reasons, one of the primary reasons that we instruct and even discipline our children is because God has told us to. So, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Fathers, don't exasperate your children, but bring them up in the fear and in the instruction of the Lord. Those two things work hand in hand. One of the ways that my children learn to obey is by me bringing them up in the instruction and fear of the Lord, and that means that I have to be following the guidelines or the patterns that have been laid out, 
And I see over and over again, especially in places like Proverbs, that disciplining my children is a responsibility that I have been tasked with. So Proverbs will say things like, uh, we already mentioned foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, rod of discipline will drive it far from him. It will say, be diligent to discipline your sons. Though you beat him, and understand, we're not talking about abuse, though you strike him, spank him, he will not die, and you'll save his soul from Sheol, meaning discipline him now because your discipline is much lighter than future discipline that'll come. Not following through on this shows that I'm just as disobedient and hard-hearted and rebellious as what my little toddler or my little grade schooler or my teenager is. I have to, and let me add to that, it's good for your children to know that. By that I mean there are times when we've had our children in, we're about to discipline them, either with a spanking when they were young or as they get older by taking away some sort of freedom or privilege or something like that, and we tell them very specifically, right? Listen, I don't really want to do this. This is not fun for me. I'd much rather, and then you lay out the rosy scenario, right? What life would be like in a perfect world. But, Anthony, Sean, Seth, or Aaron, Leah, Casey, but this is what you did, And God tells me that I have a responsibility to discipline you, to train, to teach you to obey. It's it's good for them to hear that. We could go on, but I'll move to the second one. House rules as a demonstration of grace. One, Our rules are a demonstration of grace when our rules are an expression of love. There's a quote here. I think this is Josh McDowell who gave this quote. Um, Rules without relationship lead to rebellion. So the, the proper motivation for me having rules in the house and expecting my children to live by them is not first and foremost for my convenience. Right, so you have a rule in the house that whenever you're inside the house, no one can speak. Why? Because I just don't want to hear all of your chattering and all of your nonsense talk. Therefore, I make a rule, absolute silence at all times in the house. That, that is not a rule that comes from a heart of love. That's a rule that comes from irritability, selfishness, child fatigue, I don't, I don't know what you want to call it, shell shock, whatever, you know, chalk it up to whatever you want. But there needs to be a recognition that the, that the rules and instructions that you're giving your kids, they need to be able to know, you need to tell them why it is that you're doing this, that this is for your good, and even take opportunities to explain to them what the good of this rule is, why I do this because I love you. No, I don't let you run out into the street whenever you want because I love you too much to let you get hit by a car, right? Just simple things. Number two, law is like a fence that provides freedom within protection. This is becoming more and more countercultural because our idea, or let's say society, Pop culture's idea of freedom means the total absence of any kind of restraint or expectation. And that goes as far as if a bird decides that a bird wants to be a fish, the bird shouldn't be restricted to being a bird. Let the bird be a fish. Rather than saying, well, no, that's not the way it works, he is sort of boxed into being a bird. But within that framework, within that structure, there are all sorts of things that the bird can do to enjoy life, to have fun. You have your, your backyard fenced in for your kids so that when they start to become old enough that they can go outside and you don't have to watch them every waking minute of the day, you can actually put them outside and say, go nuts, right? 
The only thing you can't do, you can't climb over the fence or dig under it or cut it or mangle, right? You have to stay inside the fence. And as long as you're inside the fence, anything that you find is, is fine to do. Tremendous amount of freedom, but also with the added benefit of their protection and boundaries keeping them from otherwise drifting out, even unwittingly drifting out into places where they can be harmed or where harm can grab hold of them. Number three, discipline is paying a price today so as to avoid greater pain in the future. This sort of goes back to what we just mentioned about um, the verse in Proverbs about not being too discouraged to discipline your children because in being diligent with your discipline, you'll save them from hell or save them from Sheol. As our kids have gotten older, we, we try to, this doesn't always happen, all right? But we, in our saner moments, we do try to have opportunities when the, when the opportunity presents itself to be able to explain to them the reason that we're doing this is because right now, your anger got the better of you and led to you doing this to your sister. But God makes it clear, Scripture says, that anger is something that just can, like all other sin, infects the heart, infects it, and your sin is never content to remain with just lashing out at your sister. It's gonna start to get worse and it's gonna create bigger and greater problems for you in the future. Therefore, I'm disciplining you now so that this can be a reminder of the consequences that come with anger, hopefully, so that there are not worse consequences that you face in the future. That, that's a gracious thing to do. Number four, commands are conversation starters. Not always, but they can be. By that we mean this. Remember if you go back to our verses from Deuteronomy chapter six, in verse 20, the people are told, now when your son comes and asks you, what are these commands and these statutes and these ordinances? Then you shall say to him, and it's it more or less, interestingly enough, it's sort of an Old Testament gospel presentation. Well, we were slaves, and God saved us. And now, this is our response to the God who saved us. We, we obey, and we walk with him. It's a good thing for us to do this, right? When, as your kids get older, and as they begin to ask questions, why do we do this? Why do we have to do this? Why do we have to do that? Or why can't we do this? Why can't we do that? There are times at which it, it can be very appropriate to seize on that moment and to express or explain to them, give them a glimpse into your heart and your mind. Now, having said that, this goes back again to the idea that hopefully we're trying to set house rules that are ultimately rooted in love and concern for our kids, not just out of convenience for us. So that when our kids ask us, well, why can't we watch this? I can tell them. At an age, in an age-appropriate way, well, that show just had, they, they have bad language. And we don't talk that way, and I don't want you to learn to talk that way. Or there are bad things that they show on that. Or as they get older in their teens, sexual immorality, they glorify that. They make it look good. And you give them an opportunity to be able to hear from you why it is that you have these rules. And ultimately, those things lead into spiritual conversations, even things that come down to practical matters like what time we eat supper, even that ultimately can drift into spiritual conversation when it gets down to issues of, it's, it's just a matter of submission, son. This, this is what mom and dad said. This is, this is the way the house works. Can you obey? Can you not? Why can't you? Right? Even, even those things are opportunities to talk. One caveat. That does not mean that A, every question has to receive an answer from you. Sometimes the only response you need to give is you just need to obey, right? And number two, certainly the younger they are, the fewer opportunities you have for discussion. 
I'm not going to get into a long, drawn-out discussion with my two-year-old about the fact that they need to go to bed now. They just need to go to bed. So, one of the things that my wife taught me, right, is at certain times when they're young, the only conversation that needs to be had is two syllables, obey, right, a little more force than that, but you're, you're kind of whacking them on the, on the rear end or on the hand. All they need to know is, mom said not to do that or mom said to do this, you're not doing it, you need to obey. No more discussion. But as you transition and they get older, there are going to be more and more opportunities to actually discuss these things, and those are great opportunities that we should not run from and should not be afraid to take part in. House rules as a pathway to Christ. Rules and commands give sin an opportunity to show itself. Paul says in Romans 7 that had it not been for the law, I would have never known what it meant to covet. But when the law came and said, thou shalt not covet, all of a sudden I realized, oh, I covet. The law revealed sin. And as such, demonstrated the fact that Paul was a sinner. He was a lawbreaker. So our commands, even when it comes to very basic, practical things, and when our kids don't obey, when they break rules, when they break commands, that is a way in which they are being shown from a very young age all the way up through their growing and maturation process that they, like their mom and dad, are born sinners. And they need to know that. Number two, rules and commands expose the sinfulness of sin. By that, we mean, by that I mean this. When, for example, you look back at the Deuteronomy 6 passage, where the answer to the son about the commands that they have to follow is, well, God did this for us, he saved us, and it's actually for our good and for our life that we obey this, right? When you have an opportunity to let your children know the reason that I don't let you play in the street is because I don't want you to get hurt or the reason I don't let you watch this show or get on this website or something is because I don't want you exposed to this and they do it anyway, sinfulness of sin, right? It's, it's more than just the fact that they step over a line and break a rule or disobey. It's the fact that even though you've told them this is for their good, they still want to do what you've told them is not good for them. Son, do you realize that what you're doing is harmful for you? It is destructive. This will cripple you later in life if you continue to do this. And you use those opportunities. We're, speak, we're thinking specifically now in terms of using things like obedience and disobedience to ultimately point our kids to Christ. We want to use those opportunities to say, not just the, the stereotypical what were you thinking, right? But what, why, why did you do that? Did you know that was wrong? Yeah, Dad. Well, why did you do it? I don't know. And then you fill that in, if need be, to say, well, I know why you did it. You disobeyed for the same reason that I disobey, and that is you've got a heart that just bends towards sin. Even when you know it's not good for you, that's how sinful we are, son, that we do things that we know are going to hurt us in the long run. Not just that they're sinful, but that they're utterly sinful. Number three, rules and commands reveal a desperate, a desperate need for Jesus, and we put in parentheses here this, you know, some theological jargon. We have a desperate need for Jesus for justification and sanctification. By that we mean this. As our kids are confronted with the demands of the law, and whether that be house rules, what time you're supposed to go to bed, what, uh, what shows you can watch or not watch, to divine law. Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not lie, honor your father and mother, those things, all right? As they become more and more aware of the fact that they continually fail to meet the bar, to, to meet the standard, 
that even on their best days they still sin, they're going to they're realize gradually, or at least we're going to bring to their attention, see, it happened again. We just went over this yesterday, and here you are doing it right, not in a way to beat them down, but as a way to say, this is why we need Jesus. Because if it's just me trying to do what God tells me to do, maybe on a really good day, if it's really, I'll do it, but truth of the matter is, I don't always want to do what God tells me, even though he says it's good for me to do. The problem, son, is my heart. I need you, and that's your problem too. You don't want to do what is right, and that's why you need Jesus. And we need Jesus to, to make us right before God for all of the things that we have done in breaking his law. We also need Jesus, though, to give us the ability to obey long term. Not just to cover us for the disobedience, but to give us the ability to obey as we go forward. And the law has a brilliant way of demonstrating that. We'll close out here with, um, uh, with this quote. This is from the Disciple Making Parent book. Uh, Betta says, discipline gives a perfect chance to apply the gospel A primary discipleship objective is teaching our children to live under our rule. We are rescuing them from undisciplined self-law where they do what they want to do. We are moving them to the blessing of living under our law and rules. As they inculcate this glad submission, they are able to transfer this understanding to God. When our children break our law, and they will, and they will, We are able to show them that we have to discipline them because we love them. Similarly, God's law is higher than our family. All of us have broken that law. In light of this, we are so thankful that Jesus has taken our punishment for us. Not only has God forgiven our sin, but he sent his Holy Spirit within us to help us obey. Again, kind of bringing it back to big picture. We we do this. We, We have rules in the home because we love our kids and we want what's best for them, we, we're caring for them by laying down these rules and these guidelines. And we're also doing this because we're following in the pattern of the only perfect father that will ever exist, and that's God himself, who gives law and commands and instructions to his children for their good and for their benefit And even when they break his laws, which are perfect, still loves them enough to provide the payment for that disobedience and that law breaking. Okay? If we had more time, I had two other other things. Yes, no, I'm I'm looking, yes, is it okay? Okay, I'll, I'll do this quickly. I'll do this quickly. Because I said, we're going to wrap it up, and I give you the quote, the plane's coming into land, and then the pilot just pulls it back up again and says, no, 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 just kidding. Okay, so, okay, I'll, I'll do this quickly. Uh, a key distinction, childish versus rebellious. When, we, when we're talking about obedience in the home and, and children following instructions and adhering to our rules and everything like that, when they don't obey... Not if, when they don't obey, it's, it's very helpful, very helpful to ask, is their disobedience a result of them just being childish and immature? And that may mean something as simple as they didn't show any kind of foresight at all. We told them to be gentle with their sister. They had their sister out on the swing doing underdogs, right? Underdogs, you, you run under the swing so that they go super high as you run under and through, and then, and she falls off and clunks her head, and, right? Wait, were they doing that to be rebellious, or did they really think their sister was gonna have fun, and it ended up not being so gentle? Were, were they being childish, or were they being rebellious? Depending on the answer, right, Okay, well, if it's childishness, then maybe what's necessary here is a good object lesson. Think, son, or don't do that again, right? 
or something like that, as opposed to if it's rebellious, no, they knew what they were doing should not be done. You'd already given instructions. They just flat out disobeyed. Well, okay, that means there needs to be more serious discipline or more serious follow-up. Not everything that your child does is done because they're, they're wanting to stick a finger in your eye. Sometimes they do it just because they're kids and that's what kids do. And they're not thinking, literally, they're not thinking. They just, they just do stuff, golly. Okay, last one. Um, we talk about having rules in the house and we're talking about the fact that ultimately the reason that we have uh, rules and we require obedience is because we're trying to um, move them or transition them to seeing Life under our roof as a little microcosm of what it means to live under God's rule. All right. So, not only do we have rules when it comes to um, basic day-to-day, you know, the mundane things of life, cleaning, bathing, eating, doing chores, stuff like that. We, we also do things um, that are a clear reflection of our Christian orientation, So, when the brother smacks the sister or the sister smacks the brother or something like that, more than just simply saying, don't do that again, the question is, what is a helpful way or, or what should I do as a Christian parent? Not just simply as a parent who wants to maintain order in the house, but as a Christian parent, what should I do? Do, do I make little Johnny apologize to his sister even though the apology is going to sound something like this? Sorry I hit you. Yeah, okay. Right? Do, do, I, do I want to do that? And, and here, because the question comes in, well, if you have your child do these Christian things, so in this case, he hit a sister, he's got to admit wrongdoing, that he hurt her, and he's got to ask for forgiveness. I'm sorry that I hit you. I'm sorry that I hurt you. Will you forgive me? Right? Very distinctly Christian, admitting, acknowledging offense, seeking forgiveness. Is it right to have your kids do that when they're just going to go through the motions? If their heart's not in it, and I tell them that they have to apologize and ask their sibling to forgive them, am I just creating a Pharisee? And, I, and, and my answer would be, no, we're, no, we're not. Because with a little mini sinful heart, that comes into the world ignorant, that has foolishness bound up in it, they don't know what confession and forgiveness and reconciliation looks like unless it's modeled for them and unless you walk them through it. They don't have that kind of language. They don't have that kind of, that kind of conceptual ability to say, oh, okay, here's the right thing to do. Furthermore, as they get older and they start to give more attitude when you, when you tell them to apologize and to ask your sister for forgiveness, right? Now they're, they're middle school, high school now, and you can just, you, the, the rage is just dripping off of their tongue and their lips even as they apologize, right? They, they cannot believe that they're the ones that have to ask for forgiveness when my sister skipped the song that I was listening to or whatever. Okay? Those are golden opportunities to come in and to say the problem is the heart. Right? You, you said that you were sorry. Did you really mean it? And as they get older, they'll, they'll, there's no secret. No, I didn't mean it. Did you really want them to forgive you? I don't care. And those are golden opportunities to say, this is why we need Jesus, because outwardly, externally, you did what you were told to do, but do you think that the way that you did it, was that pleasing to God? Was that Christ-like? The fact that you just parroted the words, or is God after something more? Is he after a heart that actually wants to reconcile with your sister, that wants to make his wrong right, that wants to find forgiveness? So, especially when they're young and as they're growing, I think it's good to put them through their paces and to have them do, walk through Christian exercises, even though 
The little sinners may still have an unregenerate, dark, murky heart. This is one of the ways in which they see what Christianity looks like. And they're reminded over and over again that they need something outside of themselves to change the way that they're feeling, to change their impulses, to change their desires. And so even when they don't feel like doing it, it's not hypocritical to have them do it. Again, that's part of the instruction process. Okay? All right, we're done. Let me close this out with some prayer. Father, thank you for your goodness and your mercy to us that in your grace you have given us very clearly instructions and commands and exhortations. You do that so that we would know exactly what it is that you desire of us, what you want to see from us. But your grace goes even further than that because being unable to give you all that you require, you do not demand that we make that payment for those wrongs and those uh, violations ourselves, but you offer up your son in our place to take on the penalty and the punishment for our sin and disobedience. Help us, Father, as parents, as grandparents, to be able to look at our children and grandchildren and to see their desperate need to be brought face-to-face with the saving person of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross on their behalf. That, like all of us, they've been placed under authority for their good, and yet because of the rebelliousness of their hearts, they they want to just buck that. They want to throw all authority and constraints off of them. It just reveals their little rebel's heart. But in wisdom and in humility and patience and persistence, help us to continually point them to the goodness of your word and your law and to the goodness of Christ to save us even from ourselves. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Session three next week is our last one. We'll be talking about uh, conversion and Christian maturity when your child sort of turns the corner. Thanks for being here.